This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. Today I talked with Stuart Verity. We talked about uh, theosophy, Vipassana meditation retreats in the Goenka style. Um, his three visits to the Kumela the, uh, in India, the, uh, one of the largest religious festivals in the world. Um, we talked about psilocybin mushrooms and the spiritual experiences that they can induce. And also um, ayahuasca, drinking ayahuasca with the Santa Daime Church, the Brazilian um, group. Uh, also, Stuart has been doing Tai Chi and Qigong for 20 years uh, and is a teacher of that now. Um, he did a postgraduate certificate in integral theory with the, the uh, JFK University in San Francisco. Um, and for the last 10 years, has been studying Dzogchen, the Tibetan. Um, tradition with Daniel P. Brown, who, um, in my opinion, one is one of the greatest teachers of that, uh, Western teachers of that in the world alive at the moment. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Okay, Stuart Verity, welcome and thanks very much for joining me. Um, Hi, Ralph. Good to be here. <clears throat> so we, this is our first face-to-face -face meeting, so to speak, screen-to-screen. Mm -hmm. um we never met in person but uh as so often is the case with th when people have a shared interest um you know you just sort of connect online and uh <clears throat> um we had a um got a long phone conversation um a while ago probably mm -hmm. probably about two hours <laughs> first time we'd ever talked and so we talked for two hours so um it was it was really good and we have a lot of shared interests and um so i'm doing this series of, of talks to people about their personal journey with uh, an integrated practice um of across the broad domains of body heart mind and spirit mm -hmm. um and uh most of the people i've i've interviewed have we've connected around integral theory uh to begin with which is how you and i uh, met each other um yeah and I think you actually might be the <clears throat> the most qualified person I've talked to so far about in it, the integral theory stuff because you've done a postgraduate degree. Yes, in, that's in it. That. Uh, it was a yeah postgraduate diploma. I think I, I wanted to do the MA, but uh, that was three years, and a year and a half was uh, as much as I managed to keep up with. So yeah. I ended up with the yeah, integral uh, theory certificate from the JFK University. Yeah, cool. So I'd, I'd love to know what that, we could talk about that a bit uh, mm -hmm. later, about what that was like doing it. I presume you did it online because we you did it in, online. Yeah, we, we had a couple of times I went to the States for a week to meet face to face the other uh, people uh, that were participating. And then it was done online. It was like, a, you know, 24 hour uh, a week study time and then meeting online to discuss uh, uh, at various points. Uh, so it's quite intense, but uh, it was good to read the Wilbur stuff and then double check that I'd got the right, uh, the right take on it. So it was a useful year and a half. Yeah. Cool. So uh, we're just going to kind of run through your story with 
these transformational practices uh, in kind of yeah. roughly chronological order. Um, so, um, yeah, where do you want to start? Well, um, I suppose uh, we'll start back, uh, I guess, when I first started to uh, find uh, 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 spiritual practices or organizations that were teaching meditation and things. And uh, that, I guess the start of my spiritual journey. And um, I, uh, I grew up in the north of England in, in Darlington and uh, 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 left school at 16 and went and did an apprenticeship. And then in my early 20s decided I'd, I'd like to go back to, to, to school or to, to university. And uh, I ended up um, doing an art foundation course and uh, ended up going eventually to Liverpool uh, to do a fine art sculpture. Uh, BA and uh, it was during that time leaving home and being in a fresh uh, uh, city the first city I was in doing my art foundation course was was Leeds and uh, I remember uh, uh, looking around to see what was happening in the meditation world or uh, spiritual practice world and coming across the, the Theosophical Society and uh, they had a, a house not far from where I lived, uh, uh, with a, a beautiful stained glass window of a of a uh, of a lotus. So it was a stained glass window with an Oriental theme, and uh, I started going along there for uh, meditation uh, uh, classes and things. And um, I think uh, uh, my first sort of intense experience was um, I was given a a, uh, a tape recording of a uh, sort of a middle pillar type meditation with the five sort of elements and it was probably of a Kabbalistic uh, or possibly a Vedanta uh, orientation and um, I, I did this for weeks uh, used it as a training wheel and got very very used to that sort of middle pillar uh, meditation and um, uh, then uh, I had a strange experience. Uh, a, a friend had uh, collected uh, some magic mushrooms from the uh, up on the, the hills above Leeds and uh, made some tea. And uh, uh, we, we, we had a, an interesting evening. And at uh, some point, uh, we put this meditation tape on and, uh, and did the hour's worth of middle pillar meditation with the assistance of the mushrooms, uh, which really enhanced our concentration abilities and visualization of, uh, abilities. And this is a real sort of awakening and nothing really happened like this before. Uh, so I, I experienced a very luminous version of the, uh, the middle pillar meditation exercise. And uh, it had a, quite a profound uh, uh, effect on me. What, what kind of age were you at that time? Uh, this is uh, I was 23. Right. So I was a young mature student. Uh, I was 23, so I qualified to be a mature student, but I, I was uh, a, a young mature student, uh, I, I guess. Um, a couple of things that, um, uh, that I, I, I've been thinking of, just listening to what you said, is <clears throat> I, when I was at school, I, I did art at school and we did Mondrian at some point and he was um, quite into theosophy. Yes. Formed a lot of his art, but it didn't make any sense to me at the time. I mean, I, in my teenage years. Um, and uh, I think theosophy, 
something I, I don't know a great deal about myself um, other than, I mean, I was very into Krishnamurti. Um, yes. Well, I mean, I st- still am. I think, uh, you know, Krishnamurti is one of those spiritual giants. And, um, you know, he's, he's got that interesting story of being seen on the beach as a 14-year-old boy by uh, one of the guys in the, the- Theosophical Society and <clears throat> talked into coming back to England and being groomed as this world teacher. And uh, I'm yes. sure a lot of people know the story, but it's... Um, Yes, they have a colourful history and colourful stories all the way from the start right the way through. But the Krishnamurti is a yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, and also the when when I um, had my first ever psychedelic experience uh, was LSD um, as a teenager, and and I was at school going to church a lot, and you know they talk about these experiences that that. that prophets were having you know in the old testament and stuff and it never really made any any sense and none of them were talking about actually having these experiences ourselves and then the first time i took lsd i was like wow i was actually having my own first ever experience of what was being talked about yes and it's quite a that's quite a rite of passage i think for anybody to to have that first ever first person mystical experience and is often precipitated by some kind of psychedelic like mushrooms and LSD um, for young young people. Yes. It's kind of in the culture. It's in the culture. It's even in the culture with our meditation teachers that we end up often have their own story about their late 60s, uh, um, you know, uh, psychedelic uh, festival experience. Uh, it, it means something that opens you up to realize that there is something there, very tangible, uh, first person, phenomenological experience. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of a blessing and a curse in a way, because uh, uh, it's difficult to talk about it uh, because of the prohibition of, uh, um, uh, of of drugs or intoxicants in many spiritual traditions. Uh, so it's off the cards of being talked about. Um, so uh, it's sort of a blessing and a curse, but you end up with this um, almost uh, this uh, secret experience um that you can't quite explain and there's not many people in your society until you find meditation teachers that have had the same experience that can contextualize it for you yeah i think that for me it had been quite a few years of of psychedelics experiences before i encountered tibetan buddhism Mm -hmm. um which is another uh, thing you and I share an interest in in that um, <clears throat> and for the first time that I I heard people talking about actually ha- every pe- people having these experiences through doing certain types of practice and it was that had never happened you know with you and I living in England with the kind of upbringings we've had you know the encounters with religion um, it's very exoteric mm-hmm. um, quite dogmatic it's it's not so much about inner inner transformation is is um kind of alluded to uh, mm-hmm. or or but you know G- jesus and the prophets had these experiences um and 
probably nobody else will because nobody's as perfect as them. That's kind of the message I was given. Yes, yes, as if it was a historic event and they had it and now we sort of feed off the mm. breadcrumbs of that table or whatever, yes. Yeah, so. well, I mean, that's even, that's even part of the... Um, some of the, one of the texts in Anglican Christianity is uh, we're not worthy to to feed on the crumbs from underneath your table. I remember reciting that as a child. Mm-hmm. Thinking, Crikey, that's really severe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, after I was in uh, finished foundation, art foundation in Leeds, um, uh, I got onto the BA fine art course in uh, Liverpool, uh, John Moore's University, and. Um, through the uh, yoga uh, society of the students union i sort of reconnected with the theosophists but this time in 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 liverpool and uh, just because my yoga teacher uh through the yoga society of the students union was a member and i went along and uh, i was very conscious that i was the youngest person there and a lot of the theosophists were much older and uh, from a different generation, basically. And uh, I really, it's, the, it's got a fantastic history, the Theosophical Society, almost going back to the sort of uh, um, 18, sort of 80s. Uh, you could say the New Age movement maybe started back in the 1880s uh, with this uh, uh, huge interest in uh, the esoteric aspects of any tradition rather than the exoteric so uh, people were hungry for the meditation immersive experiences and uh, the, and the esoteric rather than the exoteric and i guess they were uh, the early sort of new age bridge builders uh, and people like madame blavatsky went off on their own spiritual searches around india and had intense uh, experiences with different teachers and uh, they eventually ended up moving their headquarters to india um uh, but uh, they weren't the sort of people i could have spoken to about uh, my sort of first person mystical experience so again there's this sort of uh, sobriety uh uh, spirituality and then a little bit more adventurous shamanic type uh, spirituality and uh, I was lucky in Liverpool that uh, uh, I just spotted a, a, a book or I think my housemate bought a, a book home it was Robert Anton Wilson Cosmic Trigger this is this is a, a book that he bought back from the library and I opened it up and it was Robert Anton Wilson, the, uh, I guess he's part of the beat movement and also part of the sort of hippie protest movement. And he continued to write uh, sort of manuals and instructions to help people out that had had both the uh, meditation experience, spiritual experience blended with the psychedelic experience. So Cosmic Trigger was his autobiography of him having the same similar experience and how uh, him and his um, peer group uh, coped with it. Uh, and back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the protest movement uh, blended with uh, the LSD movement and um, created a lot of motivation for people to come out en masse, uh, become sensitive to certain uh, um, issues, uh, quality issues. And, uh, um, and we sort of know the history of that. It was a little bit... Um, 
too motivational and the uh, as, as a consequence that the authorities clamped down on it and declared uh, LSD illegal and uh, but it was all the same it was very interesting at least being able to tap in to somebody from a previous generation that had the same spiritual uh, psychedelic experience and then the main polemic of Robert Anton Wilson's work was to put uh, um, conspiracy theories aside, uh, try and get real. And uh, if you've had a spiritual opening, uh, it's good to have a, a non-psychedelic practice that you're doing on a daily basis that can add stability to your awakening. So I really took that to heart and, uh, and thought perhaps the uh, hippie movement was short-lived because they hadn't done enough of balancing it with uh, 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 non-psychedelic practices. So it was a thing I took on board to sort of follow at a very early age uh, uh, this advice that to support it by, uh, for, 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 me, for me back then, my choices were Hatha Yoga and continuing uh, doing a sort of Raja Yoga meditation. So I tended to, I dropped away from the Theosophical Society because uh, they weren't really uh, offering this. And uh, um, I ended up having a, a meditation mentor that uh, had uh, been a correspondent uh, friends with Robert Anton Wilson. And he was a, a musician called Mike Keane, who had a, a band at that time uh, called Royal Family and the Poor. And they were out on factory records. So this is a young guy with a great, great interest in uh, everything Hinduism and uh, had gone into a lot of um, meditation. And for a while he'd uh, been a Hare Krishna. So he got into the Bhakti thing and he'd had some Bhakti openings uh, whilst uh, also on, on psychedelics, which had really motivated him to also travel this path of uh, the the non the non psychedelic practices to sort of support and stabilize a, a sort of opening. So I sort of went along with that with that support. Yeah, <clears throat> we can we can explore this um, later when we get into uh, so, some of the other topics. But um, I was writing today a little bit about um, psychedelics and how that how they interact with meditation <clears throat> and the. The, the biggest shift, the actual uh, complete shift in my identity um, that I've experienced over the last 20 years or whatever, um, has been precipitated by meditation practice, an actual fundamental shift in who I take myself to be. Yes, who you identify. Um, yeah, and, but the, so the psychedelics, I think, facilitated and almost lubricated um, that, uh, you know, 180 shift in who I took myself to be. But they didn't themselves bring that on as a permanent change, uh, a permanent state of affairs. And it was meditation that did so, you know, nowadays, part of my everyday identity um, is is a tra is transpersonal i mean I'm a, i have a transpersonal experience of myself and my identity um all the time partly mm -hmm. and and that's been brought on by the sustained meditation practice yes. but the 
meditation practice for reasons we might go into later uh, for 10 years the first 10 years of it was just hard slog with very little reward no mystical experiences and mm. the the psychedelics kind of fed that the side of me that wanted these altered states and actual first person mystical experiences they kind of provided that which allowed me to um not necessarily seek that through the meditation but to just faithfully pursue the practice the really boring practice <laughs> it was relatively boring but interestingly it wasn't in my opinion the psychedelics that have had the biggest impact on my life it was the meditation practice but that i don't think it needs to take people 10 years to get to that point uh, like it did me mm -hmm. um you know part a lot of the work i do is to save people having to do that that they can start from somewhere better at the beginning mm -hmm. um but uh I, it was you would just made me think of that in what you were saying yeah i i agree that can uh, the, the, there's two first person experiences there but you're not sure how to um address the identity shift to allow you to really live in the uh, um in the transpersonal in a, in I think maybe that meditation brings that shift in, in a, usually in a more gentle and uh, gradual way. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the actual shift for me was an actual event mm -hmm. that happens, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, um, but it's a little bit like um, a fruit ripening and then when it's ripe it's ripe but it's the, the ripening happens one drip at a time it's like compound interest or something yes. um, where so when that shift actually happens it's not quite as disorientating as the full-blown psychedelic states are mm -hmm. it's it's kind of difficult to bring who you are uh, during a full-blown psychedelic experience back into you the, the every day you're going to work on monday and mm -hmm. <laughs> you know driving your car and all that kind of thing whereas it's a kind of a little bit easier to do that with the meditation i mean maybe it's something to do with that i don't know yes yeah i i would agree you could um you can do your meditation uh, for an hour before you go to work and be driving on the road totally safe and end up at work with at least a good start for the day but you couldn't uh, you couldn't do that on a daily basis unless you were in a shamanic society uh, with, yeah. with your job as not uh, uh, for me I, I i do a film set building so i have to use heavy heavy machinery and sharp tools i would be better off having a different occupation if it was living in a different society yeah but i know what you mean reality has to wrap back around us and we're in the modern world and uh, uh yeah uh, it can be a challenge balancing those two those two experiences um, and uh, I think you're right that the the meditation helps us marinate in those uh, states in a gentler way and get used to them, and uh, and that also gives the possibility of mixing practice, being able to meditate on and off the cushion. Um, whereas that could be all very precarious if you were trying to do the pure psychedelic shamanic route. In mm. fact, it would almost be you you would be missing some tools if you were having to do it completely that way. But there is yeah. some cultures that have that science and that folk science and that technology and, the, and they've done it. But uh, uh, for us, it's different. Well, there, I mean, I, I don't know, but there may be some practices that in the societies you're talking about, they may have some correlative 
practices that go alongside the shamanic practices, which are more that kind of long-term drip, drip, drip thing over time. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know that for sure, but, yeah. <clears throat> you know, we, we um, in the West, you know, we've, we've kind of plucked practices out from different, out of their contexts. Mm-hmm. and use them and sometimes that has not gone well mm-hmm. um yeah but i mean we, you know we're in the process of creating something new now in the west um and yes. uh, you know, that's what i'm excited about and what these conversations are about and uh, yeah. yeah so you uh, go, going forwards in your story um so yeah uh in the uh first year i was at uh, liverpool uh, uh my girlfriend at the time we were both very into yoga and uh, it was going to be cheaper for us to get our student loan at easter time uh go to buy a plane ticket to india we both wanted to go to india so we bought both bought a plane ticket to india and we had about sort of four or five hundred pounds to live on for three months in india and if we'd stayed in England, it would maybe have been a case of signing on the dole or going, living back with your parents and uh, going to India and surviving off, uh, living very, very cheaply uh, seemed a better option. Uh, so we both encouraged each other and uh, we teamed up and, 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 and went to India and uh, had a very interesting time, lived very frugally, uh, went to Dharamsala, to the Tibetan refugee uh, community there. Um, And uh, at the end of our uh, trip, uh, we bumped into somebody that uh, suggested that we tag along with them and come to a a festival uh, called the Kumbamela. Oh, wow. uh, And I said, oh, what's the Kumbamela? They said, oh, it's like a sadhu's version of Glastonbury, but it goes on for three months and there's maybe 10 million people there and uh okay so we got on a train and went to one of the four sites is a place called nasik and uh, uh we spent a week uh, i guess being sort of guests taken care of and it's almost like being uh uh, you know, anthropologists or reverse anthropology, just turn up there, be humble, or fit in and see what's happening. And uh, it was a fascinating uh, uh, week. And uh, we uh, had picked a, uh, we'd rescued a dog en route, a small puppy. And when we got to the Cumbermella, this restricted on who would uh, give us accommodation. And all of the spiritual traditions are there with their encampments that are almost like a refugee camp stroke Glastonbury. And uh, uh, the person that we travelled with took us to the Hare Krishna camp because they had a lot of Westerners there. But the Hare Krishna uh, uh, wouldn't let us in because of the dog. Uh, they had a religious prohibition against dogs. <laughs> so we were stuck with this puppy. We were nursing back to health. And, uh, um, and then somebody said, oh, we'll, we'll take you further down the, the, the river. The, the, I know a sadhu camp, they're very open. They're, they're, they're nice. They're, they'll, they'll be fine. And uh, we got taken to a, uh, to a sadhu camp and uh, and uh, the a very uh, colorful collection of sadhus from different groups were there so we found out later this was a, a sadhu camp for people that didn't get on with their gurus and they'd all collected together in a mixed camp uh, with a very open uh, guru that was happy to have these sort of orphan spiritual children that didn't get on with their spiritual teachers so it was a real mixture 
uh, of people from many, many different groups, uh, but all very open. And, uh, and uh, they, they took this dog on and looked after it and were fascinated by it. It was like a, a, new, a new mascot for their camp. Uh, so we spent, spent the very interesting week uh, with, the, with the sadhus. And uh, there was a number of Western sadhus there. Uh, there's some part-time sadhus, uh, Indian sadhus that uh, have been sadhus for 10 years, then dropped back into life and uh, uh, had gone to various foreign countries. And sometimes they were coming back, just visiting their spiritual guru, reconnecting. Uh, a Canadian sadhu and a sadhu from Texas who were just part-timers that would come in for the Kumbamela festival, maybe spend a year in India researching, carrying on research they started many years ago. And uh, uh, so there was a really nice collection of people that, um, um, and also the main sadhus of the group that we were staying with who were carrying on their spiritual practices on a daily basis. And their, day, uh, their practices were meditations, uh, sitting around the fire, singing bhajans. The most entertaining was hearing all of the songs and then taking turns in small groups to sing various songs. Uh, sometimes the songs would be in English. Uh, my Canadian friend Govinda had written a lot of songs in English dedicated to Ram and to Hanuman. And uh, uh, so... The, at any festival, it's the really the music that carries <laughs> carries you through the experience. And if the music wasn't happening, festivals would be like refugee camps. Mm. Uh, and and that's even in a traditional festival where people are singing a cappella. There's not a sound system there. Uh, there's people singing a cappella around the fire. So it really sort of uh, realised how accessible uh, devotional s singing and spiritual singing was and anybody can really enjoy it. It's the most democratic, accessible, um, creative way of group meditation. And you go, okay, so this is why singing is so popular in religions around the world. And it was really interesting to see these excellent meditators have such a high appreciation for, uh, for, for singing. And, uh, yeah, just going um, back to my time in school, um, the singing we did uh, mm -hmm. in church was the only thing I enjoyed about mm -hmm. um, religion. Yeah. And, and that was, that was the only thing that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, you know? Yes. Um, mm. Which is, is, is a, a, like a first person phenomena where mm. you, you're feeling something spiritual in a way, aren't you? Or it's, mm. it's moving you or it's affecting your energy body in a, in a, in a, in a certain way. Yeah. I also, through Sunday school and things, had similar moments where I overcame myself of being too cool for school and got into the singing and, and experienced some of that hair raising and the, the heartwarming uh, spirit of the song uh, would, would be a palpable experience. And uh, so it was nice to reconnect with that and uh, with the, via, via the sort of sadhu experience and, uh, and realise we're not too cool for school and we can get into it and uh, and embrace it and understand it as a really powerful technique that so many traditions both spiritual and religious rely on um, but it um it really aids memorization yes. <clears throat> and so many of the uh really pithy spiritual texts from uh you know hinduism and 
non-dual Shiva Tantra and um, and the Tibetans that you encountered up in Dharamsala, um, yes. you know, they chant these texts regularly yeah. as songs, but mm-hmm. they are, if you were to read them, they seem like really dense philosophical statements or mm-hmm. texts. You know, so it'd be a bit like somebody putting Nietzsche to song. Yes. Or, you know, in the West. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, the same uh, subtle use of language that's conveying a very important point that might include a, an identity shift within it. Mm. Um, we, we, we do have that, the kind of the, the Latin singing in Catholic services and stuff, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's qu- quite impenetrable. The actual mystical and philosophical content of those services is, is quite inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, if you were to you know, translate some of these things that people sing, um, singing at the Kumela into mm-hmm. English, uh, some of it is straight philosophy. Yes. Uh, and and philosophy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Without, you know, I mean, there, there are cultural barriers to us understanding some of the references are specific to India or Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was one of the things that when I first encountered Eastern religions coming you know, as a Westerner, that was what I enjoyed. That's what I recognized and was drawn to when I first came across them was that at the heart of it is serious philosophy and psychology Mm -hmm. and mystical experiences. It's all out there in the open there. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, they're always talking about that. There's loads of books on it. And whereas in Christianity, I know it's, I know it's there now, because yes. I've been able to come back to it. But at the time, I would have had to have dug so deep or been extremely lucky yes. you know, to come across somebody in that kind of context, in the Christian yeah. context. Yeah, I've had a similar experience. I can look back uh, once sort of understanding uh, uh, Bhakti that is um, aimed at um, referencing mythological uh, gods and goddesses and then there's a type of bhakti singing which is sometimes formless bhakti which is pointing out instruction hidden within songs for different identity shifts and uh, as you say this was uh, almost heretical within christianity many of the very good uh, christian mystics that are approaching a non-duality uh, uh, had a lot of trouble uh, being accused of being heretics by going too much into that formless direction. Oh, yeah, and, and burned at the stake. Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, I, I, the one that comes to mind is the Reinhardt, 14th century Reinhardt mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart, who had to go in front of like a religious court and defend and withdraw some of his statements uh, because they were going way beyond Christianity into a universal formlessness that made certain Catholic people uncomfortable. Uh, but it's there, and uh, some prodigious people were just managing to get up there. And, uh, yeah, well, Meister Eckhart, he got away with his life, didn't he? I think... Um... If from if I remember correctly, he was he was sort of famous enough to be. It, it would have been a problem to imprison him for life, or you know, burn him at the stake. So they condemned his 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 writing to hell. Yes, um, but not the man. Not the man. Yes. Yeah, Julian of Norwich. I mean, there, there's um, Teresa of Avila. There's lots of yes. um, 
of Christian mystics who are incredible. But uh, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I'm for, I only learned about those in my twenties, you know, and I was mm-hmm. I was kind of I was out of that Christian context by that time. And they're still relatively unknown, some of them. Uh, sometimes somebody will give you a tip of like, oh, have you seen this particular one? And you go, oh, okay. Um, there's one particular one that Douglas Harding was really uh, fond of. Somebody, Trahan or something. Uh, really obscure to track down. But again, it was another mystic that we, in our own culture, we know our own culture really badly. Uh, mm. and uh, and it still goes on with uh, uh, Pierre Thiard de Chardin's 20th century mystical writings uh, he was asked not to publish them uh, whilst he was alive and uh, they were still on a, uh, a Catholic do not read this do not give this to teenagers list until more recently now the current Pope is very quite pro uh, 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 Pierre Thiard de Chardin uh, the phenomena of man and uh, uh, it, it, so it's but it just takes a while sometimes uh, a long long time in some traditions yeah <laughs> get accepted and things to open up so so like you I went to India um, I've, I've been to India three times and um, you know I came back a different person I'd seen things there that I'd never seen in my country yeah. um, and it was um, a very very condensed period of worldly education. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I was a bit younger than you. I was only eighteen when I went, and um, the first time, and mm-hmm. uh, it was, yeah. I mean, I came back a different person. So we're sort of at that point in your story at the Kumela. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I'll, I'll sort of jump on a little bit. I, I returned to, to three more Mellas after that, or two more Mellas. I've been to three Mellas. So there was a Mella the following year that I could make it to by, again, uh, leaving college at Easter time and staying in India until October when college started again. So I went to the second uh, Mella in, in Ujjain, stayed with the same sadhus again, got to know them a little bit better. And then uh, two, three years after that, it was the, the next Mella. Uh, there's a four Mellas in a 12-year cycle. Uh, so I caught the next Mela at Alabad, found the same sadhus and stayed with them again. So for sort of three consecutive Mela's, I stayed with the same people, just getting to know them uh, a, a little bit. And one of the most interesting things was asking them what their practice was. And uh, um, their practices, uh, in a way, were very in, in, integral that they would, because they're full time, a lot of them are full time, they have got time to, to study the, the Upanishads and uh, the Vedantic texts. They've got time to be pretty good at their own uh, uh, version of Hatha Yoga that they've taken on uh, to keep themselves sort of uh, fit and supple. Um, their devotional practices are expected if you turn up at somebody's uh, 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 fire uh, and, and join them, you will be expected to sing a song at some point. Uh, so they, in, in a very strange sort of way, the modern sadhus are expected to sort of cover uh, quite a quite a variation and then to sometimes major in 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 in, in one of these areas uh, go he- more heavily into uh, uh, ascetic meditation or go more heavily into studying the Upanishads or things like that so they sort of decide and negotiate with their guru what what it's going to be and, but, but uh, they you know they have that the tradition of 
karma yoga, raja yoga, bhakti yoga, and jnana yoga. That's so, it. you know, the, those four together make a very integrated um, path. Yoga. Yes. Um, yes. <clears throat> but of course, you know, no one's going to be an expert in all four of those. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> well, some rare individuals might be, but, you know, people will go down one line or the other. But at least in India, those four paths are kind of everybody knows about those four paths. And yes, then, it's not unusual. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's more the norm for those for those for those people. So that was very interesting, and also another thing that had a great effect on me: their sadhus and uh, their their practice, their sadhana is their practice, and they tend to do it on a daily basis. And this was this was the best thing that happened to me: realizing what sadhana was, that it could be constructed, put together negotiated and you could have uh, uh, various practices that you engaged with uh, on a daily basis or uh, or every few days and you could have these sort of this long long ongoing project was a little sort of sub-interest uh, so uh, that was the nicest thing that happened to me I, I sort of got into sadhana just having a space in my life to give myself a couple of time slots a time slot in the morning and a time slot in the evening where whatever I was interested in, I would do that then, a meditation in the morning and a, some yoga at evening time and then read some books. Uh, so it was, a, it was an early version, I guess, of, 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 uh, of what I later learned to appreciate, more refined version of it as, a, as an integral approach. But it was nice to know that it was there in Indian culture it's there in the work of, uh, of uh, sort of Gurdjieff, uh, sometimes has orientation towards, you know, uh, belly, mind, uh, heart and mind. Uh, so you tend to get a triangle, uh, whereas uh, the, the, the integral stuff gives us more than a triangle. It gives us a, a square or any extras that we want, you know, we don't have to restrict it just to a triangle. Um, um, but uh, yeah, just having, Put, having space in my life, some 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 time windows to 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 have an ongoing practice, whatever that was, and if that changed, uh, that was also fine. One of the first practices I was given by my sadhu friends was a was a mantra, an Om Namo Bhagavati Vasudevai mantra, which is a Krishna mantra, and uh, they gave me the wrong information. The guy who gave me it told me it was a goddess of of wealth and abundance, and uh, I think he's wanting a big tip. And uh, um, but I, I had that mantra as a mantra that uh, I would uh, practice and play around with for, for a long time. And uh, um, after my uh, about 1994, I ended up going on a Goenka Vipassana retreat. I'd only ever done like hour long meditations at the most on my own at home uh, or usually it was a 20 minute meditation was as much as I could cope with. And then I would find occasionally if I took uh, 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 magic mushrooms, I could sit there for a six hour session. It's giving me the concentration and the, the body mind flexibility to just sit there. So the most intense, uh, meditations I had would be like six hour meditations with, with the sort of help from uh, the, the psilocybin mushrooms and then I booked myself into a Vipassana retreat and um, uh, that's around about uh, uh, 
10 to 12 sitting meditations a day. I, I think you've also done the same Vipassana retreat, the Goenka mm -hmm. one. So you were only ever sitting for one hour and then it's a 20 minute walk or a, or a food break, uh, uh, which is a really, really nice way of breaking up meditation. Uh, and, and then you find, because everyone is doing it, everyone has the capacity to meditate for an hour, have a walk, meditate for an hour, have a tea break. If you have a break in between your hour slots, you can keep on going and everyone is capable of doing this sort of strange regime of, of, of 10 one hour sits a day with the 20 minute breaks in between, which is quite something because you wouldn't feel like you had that ability because everyone's there and there's nothing else is happening. Uh, you, you go, you get with the program and go with it. Um, I think what it, um, <clears throat> Interestingly, a lot of people I've I've had these conversations with have been on the Vipassana retreats. They're mm -hmm. they're kind of they're very accessible. They're affordable because yes. you pay you pay what you can, um, and uh, it's very well run, very efficient, and they can take large numbers of people um, mm -hmm. in one go. Uh, one of the one of the my main criticisms of of the Vipassana retreats is they never ask the question who so you know you spend you spend 10 days you know most of every day for 10 days carefully observing things going on in your body whether mm -hmm. it's your no you know around your nostrils your chest body scans but they never never open up the inquiry into who who yeah. is the one mm -hmm making that observation but, and i mean this gets back to what i was saying about you know the first 10 years of my meditation practice were just this kind of grind mm -hmm. of boredom because i not, <clears throat> even though i i, I mean i get into this later probably um but i mean i had access to all sorts of amazing teachings from uh tibet and india and stuff but the because of the cultural barrier, uh, the, the 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 cultural references in these texts, mm -hmm. some of the some of the linguistics of it, and also some of the bad translations by yeah. Westerners too, yeah. had, had, were diverting me away from actually asking that question. And so, you know, after ten years, uh, I came across um, it was actually some pointing out instructions in one of Ken Wilber's books. Mm -hmm that were basically like Tibetan Zogchen pointing out instructions, but written by someone who was an American person in English. English was his first language. He knew how to communicate to, um, you know, white people like me, you know, or, yes. or, whatever, or English speakers or whatever. Yeah. And <clears throat> for the first time, I asked that really simple question and, I could, and it all fell into place. Yes. And, <clears throat> that's one of the things if, if, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I like Zogchen and we might get into this later is that they present you with that. as part that of right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think, you know, my misfortune was to not encounter a, a Western Zogchen, um, teacher, yeah. <laughs> you know, early on. That's what I could, I mean, I was going to see loads of Tibetan teachers, but it was very difficult to penetrate what they were talking about because of the cultural barrier yes. um and 
you know, if, if I had met a Western Zogchen teacher right at the outset, it, w- it wouldn't have taken me 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to have my first, first person experience of formless awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's my, so it's my critique. And I, Sam Harris has talked about it uh, a lot. Some, someone I, I quite like his podcast and he's got a good waking up app, um, yeah. meditation app. So he, he, he also was saying how he did years and years of Vipassana retreats. Mm-hmm. He did uh, three month long retreats and, um, you know, years and years of this practice. But then it wasn't until he encountered Zogchen that he had this um, realization of his own formless identity. Yes. And it was like, oh, if only I'd come across this earlier because all those years I was just seeking. Mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. um and yeah so that that was was my i came away from the vipassana retreat i mean i knew all of this stuff before i went in there so i was actually kind of doing my own i was adding my own things to the, the practice i was doing on the vipassana retreat yeah. I wasn't strictly following goenka's instructions because i found them too limiting and i and i um yeah i mean what what's your well, uh, I, I had a similar experience where I was following the program and um, I, uh, so the first uh, unusual thing that happened was I was struggling with following the program and struggling with the silence and uh, then uh, it got very painful and very energetically intense after about three days and uh, I, I sort of remembered one of the sadhus that uh, we'd stayed with at the Kumbamela, who had, uh, was uh, 10 years into a 12-year practice. And this 12-year practice uh, uh, is a Muli Baba practice. They don't speak for 12 years. Wow. So uh, I'd met this person who drawn in the sand for me and communicated. I, I would talk to him and he'd, he'd do doodles in the sand. And it was uh, uh, in the last two years of his 12-year silent retreat. And uh, uh, he came to mind and that helped me get with the, with the program of the sort of non-conceptual awareness, almost like I picked up a little taste or smell or whiff of the state off, off him and, and it allowed me to sort of accept uh, and it, it gave me a tiny little in, inroad and it allowed me to sort of get, get with, the, with the practice. And then I found after another, uh, it got more intense. I said, okay, okay. And um, they were saying, you know, stick with the felt sensation. And then I started having a lot of luminosity arising. And it it sort of replayed to me my middle pillar meditations from my previous experience. And uh, uh, so it was like strange things were turning up in the uh, space that the Vipassana was creating that weren't always Vipassana, but they were just coming up anyway. And I could see them, I could take them as something that was getting in the way or just something that was turning up and needed to sort of express itself. So I just took the latter that it needed to express itself. And uh, I had some very intense uh, visual experiences which were as strong as my strongest psychedelic experiences and i could identify it as a um 
in the eyes closed state, the thing became very luminous on the central channel, and then the whole space opened up as a very, very fast moving, uh, psychedelic looking, uh, see through transparent uh, uh, sort of vision of. Uh, um, it was just the, the face of a deity like Krishna was uh, running through its meridians, had language running through its meridians. And I think it's almost like a, um, like a psychedelic vision that refused to stay in one tradition. Uh, it could be Krishna, it could be Hermes, it could be Thoth. Uh, it, it was just uh, like a sort of um, uh, mystical vision of a language deity. Uh, like the bringer of language, uh, uh, with almost like tattoo language in, in language that I couldn't recognize, like flowing through its meridians and things. Mm. And, and it, it sort of it, eventually it, it, spun it, up and went sort of very bright white light. But uh, I was really shocked that I could have equally as intense uh, experiences um, under certain conditions without, without anything mm. uh, on the outside. So this is quite a shock to me. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not surprised that you went on to get into Tibetan Buddhism because um, yes. they've got plenty of room in the Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhism for those kind of visionary uh, experiences. Yes. Um, Tibetan Buddhism is more tantric uh, type of spiritual practice than straight Vipassana. Yeah. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I mean, again, you know, I don't want to sound too down on Vipassana. I think it's, it's, it's a great practice uh, and it's um, doing great work, work in the world. And, and it's a lot of pe people's inroad into spiritual practice. Yes. And I think if done properly, um, you know, with a few little, um, there are people out there teaching what we might call integral Vipassana, mm -hmm. a, a more complete Vipassana is a more complete spiritual path. Yes. But, um, those kind of experiences aren't really taken as, you know, the, the type of visionary experience you're talking about isn't taken seriously no, no. in that more um, like Hinayana um, Buddhist context. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, you know Vipassana is a technique that is applied, you know, through the Hinayana, um, Mahayana and tantric uh, you know and zogchen i mean it's it's a kind of universal technique but it's an actual tradition it, they they're not really interested in all of that stuff no they want to the uh, they they have another agenda which is an important agenda but as you say that could be almost be seen as a uh uh an illusory uh distraction in 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 a way I mean, I was happy that I just let them run their course and uh, uh, they cleared and it was the same uh, host space in which my normal awareness and the vision, I did manage to take that away and go, oh, okay, so this is what they want in the uh, Vipassana. The actual host space is more important than anything that turns up in it. Mm. Like the, uh, the uh, transpersonal experience, knowing of the experience is more important than any of the phenomena that can, can arise in it. So yes, I found that uh, I wasn't able to talk about it uh, um, and it wasn't really their area if I did want to talk to it about it. And it wasn't till I got um, 
in the direction of the Tibetan and the Dzogchen, which they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we, we know about, and yes, and we use that in the Mahayana. They will use that rather than see it as a distraction. But it's a slightly different uh, program than the original Hinayana. Uh, it's a bit more juicy, and it does, the Tibetans uh, really embraced uh, what they could do with those visualizations and the energetics uh, so I, I did have to sort of find my way to to that in a way and mm. uh, and the Vipassana I really appreciate it as, as an opening and it was completely authentic and true their orientation um, uh, but uh, yeah if I'd wanted to talk about any of them visual experiences it would have just stick with the program and you know you'll you'll get that yeah it wouldn't have even been seen as that that important which is okay uh they've got their agenda and uh um uh, yeah so so when uh, was it around this time that you started doing tai chi training well oh, came, sorry chi, chi gung yeah so i came out of that vipassana and because i'd experienced so much of the visual luminosity the uh, i don't know whether you remember but near the end of the vipassana they ask you to sort of instead of just scanning the body they ask you to sort of take some lines down it's just a subtle part of the instruction that say yeah you could try you know taking a line down when i started taking the lines down and things it sort of uh, brought me back into the sort of subtle energy body and i finished off my vipassana by having some more intense sort of chi experiences and um sometimes experiences where it felt like I didn't have a body um, so they weren't body orientated they were just uh, body mind it got used to itself and could hold itself up and um, and a few sort of cessations that when I would come out of the cessation it would bring on a lot of visual things to try and explain why it had happened and I came out of that with a with a real interest of, of what's this qigong thing is this an area that they specialize and deal with? So I came out uh, of that uh, and I, I started investigating. I, w I kept on the meditation and I thought, uh, investigate this Qigong direction a little bit more. Uh, so uh, uh, just asked around and followed people's advice and uh, experienced a couple of different Qigong systems. Um, one is uh, Bruce Francis. Uh, he does his water method and it's, it's very influenced by Vipassana. Uh, uh, Bruce Francis's Chinese teacher, his name will come to me in a minute, he apparently uh, had spent time uh, as a Vipassana teacher in China and, uh, and then it, it uh, affected his style of teaching Tai Chi from a very awareness point of view so again the visual phenomena wasn't necessarily a big part of it but the sort of awareness awareness of the somatic self and the ability to witness that as was high on the agenda lots of standing meditation and then i was still intrigued by this visual side so i did go and investigate um with the help of a friend who was very familiar with uh, mantak chia's uh, uh, practice uh, which has some similarities uh, uh, with uh, Tibetan Buddhism and is maybe influenced or it's a type of uh, Taoism that is uh, as traded uh, skills possibly with uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, and strangely enough Bruce Francis was very anti 
uh, he was the water school of awareness and the Mantak Chia school was the fire school of the visualization and they are antagonistically convinced that uh, each one is a is, is a, a not a legitimate path or they have a criticism of each other's a fire approach or water approach and uh, uh, I found them both interesting <laughs> so, so I did them both and uh, settled my own differences uh, uh, with with them um, and then after a time, I, I thought I, I want to tackle something a little bit more challenging. And uh, so I expressed an interest in uh, 1990 with wanting to uh, check out uh, Tai Chi. And purely by chance, a friend uh, took me along, introduced me to a teacher. Uh, uh, and um, my wife was also interested. So we both started Tai Chi with a teacher that had been recommended by a friend and it turned out to be this uh, Wudang practical Tai Chi. And it, it has a very sort of serious system of, of Nei Gong and Qi Gong standing meditation, but you're not allowed to learn it uh, until about three years into the practice. So we, we had to learn like the, the short form and the long form. And then after about three years, I started the Nei Gong practice. And the Gung practice was done a little bit like the sadhus treat their sadhana. It was to be done on a daily basis. And they sometimes choose to do it for 100 days as a project to try and be a bit scientific about it, a bit committed and set yourself a project of like, you know, sort of three month practice. Uh, so I slowly, I was really intrigued that fitted my sadhana thing. And uh, I, I kept with that and moved in that direction and ended up learning the Gung which was a bit more demanding than the qigong that I'd learned. Uh, and uh, I, so that's why they insisted that I sort of sorted myself out by learning the short form and the long form. And then I started the Gong. I was quite fit and uh, I found there was a big improvement in my meditation. I could sit for longer. So when I went back and did some, uh, some uh, uh, meditation retreats, I found it so much easier because I'd had that sort of six, seven, eight years of doing the Qigong and it, it had worked its magic and I could sit for a lot, uh, a lot stabler and a lot better. So I thought, oh yeah, that long haul thing of doing the, doing the Qigong, even the Qigong that's not giving you any visual or mystical experiences, just the, the, the commitment to doing it regularly it sort of straightened a lot of stuff uh, 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 out for me. Uh, so that was uh, made me feel that sometimes just being quiet and humble and sticking with the daily practice and sticking with it and uh, uh, working working through it. Uh, in it's it's quite common in um, <clears throat> uh, in America and Europe and uh, you know the, the West for <clears throat> people don't really like they they see long term practices it's it's not sexy you know it's it's not that that bang thing um and uh it they there's there's a there is a partial truth to that i mean i think you know it's it's a little bit like in buddhism in zen you've got the uh the sudden and the gradual Mm -hmm. path and um you know, they, they kind of like to think that one's better than the other. The gradual path being people that they're the tradition where they just do lots and lots and lots of sitting meditation for years and years and years and years. And then the sudden path is more of that, that Rinzai, Cohen practice, um, 
you know more that looking for the flash of uh, awakening and insight and uh, they tend to sort of take the piss out of each other you know yeah. for their shortcomings yeah um and when when you've got an integrating mind like you and i have and the, the people i'm i'm having these conversations with you you sort of you look at that and you think oh come on guys because <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is both, both of these are important you know and um yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, what I was referring to the, in, in, in the Western culture of that want it all now, you know, that might be more of that kind of sudden awakening thing. But if you, if that's all you've got, then, you, you know, there's a whole other thing which is brought through that faithful, dedicated drips in the bucket thing. Mm -hmm. You don't even notice what's happening. And then suddenly, before you know it, some major transformations happened. Yeah um but if you if you only do that kind of the, the this kind of uh, you can get the, the faithful uh, re repetitive practice you can get into a rut yes um where no awakening is going to happen because yeah. you're just you're just repeating the same thing over and over again the tradition you're doing it in will just confirm that and encourage you to just keep mm -hmm. going, keep going. And you can go through your whole life without ever having that flash of insight that this Southern school is bringing to. So I mean, I, it's another thing I really like about the Zogchen tradition mm -hmm. is they, they do bring those two together very nicely and it's explicit. Yes. You know, and, um, More explicit than the Zen people in a way. They're not going to mess around with a cone realization. They're just going to tell you what it should look like. Yeah, <laughs> tell you where to, where, where to be, where to be in yeah. an identity relationship. Uh, um, I mean, uh, so uh, I, when I was trying to balance the differences of the, the Qigong Fire School versus the Qigong Water School, luckily enough, I came across Ken Wilber's work. And uh, from an integral perspective, you don't have to worry about these arguments. You can test them out in your own laboratory and see what fits for you. Mm. So this is a nice thing about it in uh, maybe 1998 when I was having these quandaries and uh, with these different uh, different ways into meditation, Qigong, Tai Chi, with these different opinionated people that often don't have any experience of the alternative schools anyway. They've just yeah, been told by their school that we don't like yeah. that school. It's uh, ignorance. It's it's just mm. like racism. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, I live in you know in a very rural place and i have met some people who are very racist um and when i've asked them how many for for example black people they've actually ever met mm -hmm. never none it's so based yeah, it, on the unknown yeah so he's the you know it's, it's so when when you have no experience of something you can just write it off it's the easiest thing in the world to do that you know mm -hmm. and and you seem like you're really intelligent you know that kind of sit cynicism um it 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 seems to carry some authority and and sort of some sense of intelligence with it but mm -hmm. really a lot of the time cynicism is just cynicism for for its own sake or it's a kind of masquerade as actually having some real knowledge about something you just just write it off you know mm -hmm. You know, oh, that's all. Oh, that's a load of rubbish. Well, what do yeah. you even know about it? Yeah, oh, nothing. I mean, I haven't even met anybody, like, or, or mm. even done any of those practices. But yeah. it's just, I don't even want to. 
you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> Why would I want to? And somebody told me anyway, they're all crap. You know? Yeah. Well, they, I, it was, I was thinking earlier that, you know, when you were saying about the, you know, to have these magic mushroom experiences and there was no room for that in these theo theosophical society groups mm -hmm. you were going to. And one of the great things about this, this integral movement is you can, you can take anything in there with you mm -hmm. and people are not going to write it off. Um, no. <clears throat> you know, even uh, all of it is in there. I mean, there's, there's uh, even integral, um, um, you know, uh, bondage, masochist, um, mm -hmm. sadomasochist, uh, kink. Um, yes. That sounds really uncool. <laughs> With a kink culture, you know, there's, there's mm -hmm. an integral kink, kink culture. Yeah. Um, and uh, all, of the, all of that stuff, uh, psychedelics and psychotherapy you know bringing your personalness in there as well as your transpersonal mm -hmm. you know stuff and it's all welcome and i think there's a, there's a moment when you you know li listening to your story so far um you know sounds very similar to mine and many other people that you're interested you've always been interested in all of this stuff mm -hmm. but each one of these individual schools or lineages or whatever is is saying always right all of this other stuff is a load of crap just you should just be ignoring it and you think i oh, just doesn't really seem right and then you suddenly you come across this whole global movement which actually has a hundred year history or more mm -hmm. um <clears throat> that that is saying yeah all of this stuff it's okay and it's part That's... it's all true but it's partially true Yes. Um, and you, you, it's, you're very welcome to bring all of these things in, in their own place. Yeah. I, I think it comes from a, a, a maturity. Because looking back now, you can see how anything can be a, a, a trial or a meditation. Or, you know, almost anything, you know, uh, stubbing your toe, anything. And, um, but I, I think there was a cultural shift that sort of happened as a consequence of Wilbur and the maturing of some of those teachers that had started with their psychedelic experience in the late 60s, had, uh, had taken the long haul path and then got to a point where they understood that a lot of Westerners were misunderstanding the translation, the clunky translation, the use of words. And there was almost a maturing of, of uh, uh, Wilbur and his peer group, uh, like Dan, Dr. Dan Brown from The Pointing Out Way. And uh, the high point of spiritual uh, uh, practice had been sort of misdirected to maybe being like a Kundalini experience, uh, where uh, to see that as like a subtle awakening and then there was causal realization and non-dual. It almost, those higher levels hadn't been brought into the uh, uh, into the map in a way or into the culture. So people, a lot of people were stopping short or being attracted to the juicier, quicker paths, not realizing that it wasn't really the finish or it wasn't going to be a satisfactory finish because you were still uh, uh, not at a, um, a place to know the experience. You were still being the experience. So it, it, uh, I guess I was sort of, immersed in that sort of ocean of not being able to differentiate. And uh, I think through the Wilbur work, 
and as you say, some of his very straightforward uh, live pointing out instruction that uh, he does in a few of his talks sort of really makes you aware of, of the knowing of experience rather than the experience themselves. And then we go, oh, it's okay. So we were, I was in a way, um, maybe enamored by experience where it could have made me short-sighted. But fortunately, whenever I was sort of questioning that, something would come uh, 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 like reading a Wilbur book and uh, uh, realize, oh, okay, there's, uh, there's these, these, other, these, these other things going on. That only within an integral, if you were lucky enough to have an integral teacher that was going to teach you some Raja Yoga, some uh, straight witnessing uh, meditation, uh, maybe some bhakti, and then really thoroughly allow you to understand the uh, the jhani the, the knowledge or the uh, the identity yoga. <clears throat> it would come together for you in a in a Hindu package. Well, uh, um, uh, Sri Aurobindo was, you know, one maybe one of the only people around, you know, um, in in that kind of early to mid part of the 20th century who was who was explicitly teaching that kind of thing yes they were saying post-nirvanic realization it's not finished yeah he was not famous i mean he was quite famous Mm -hmm. um but not you know he didn't have really wide reach i mean he's really he's it's a pretty obscure figure yes now even i mean but i mean there's auroville is quite a bit i mean he after he died um you know, they created this whole city. Yes, the mother's ashram. The project into Oroville, yeah. Yeah. But, um, oh, was I going to say, um, the, oh yeah, so it was around the time in your story now, so around 2000, a lot of the Western practitioners who started practice in the 60s and 70s, they'd, they'd done 30 or 40 years worth of practice in these traditions, and they were actually becoming awakened, you know, yes, um, exactly. just as much as the Tibetan or Indian uh, or Japanese um, gurus and teachers. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, before that time, you know, if you, um, there, there were kind of less Westerners. I mean, I think this is kind of the problem I encountered was, well, I didn't, I didn't, I think I, around that time, I was very much in the postmodern worldview. And I thought, um, you know, white, white people were ridiculous, <laughs> you know, and modern people and, and no English or American people could be as enlightened as these Tibetan mm. teachers or Indian gurus I was studying. So it, that, that f- the only option I had was to go to these Tibetan teachers mm-hmm. um, and have that thing of that cultural mismatch, you know, and, and, and also all, I was working with the only people I thought were worth reading were these ethnographers that went off in the like, you know, 1930s, Mm-hmm. um and times like that um who some of their translations were, were really bad you know it's mm-hmm. a translation is best done by someone who's actually had their own awakening yes is doing the practice <laughs> yeah you know and a lot mm-hmm. of these people were it was obvious they didn't understand what mm-hmm. they were trying they were just they were linguists really mm-hmm. with a kind of philosophical interest and they were translating this stuff and so 
you know, I was experiencing all of these barriers to having my own first person experience mm-hmm. of what I was studying. I mean, I was studying this at university. Um, you were at the and, South of course, yeah. At SOAS, yeah. which which was a, an institution built on all of that ethnographic study I was just describing, you know, mm-hmm. um, and ling- linguistics and all that, languages. Um, so it was quite a frustrating time for me because I could I could intuit, yeah, what was there, and I was having these first person experiences through the psychedelics, the different psychedelics I was taking, um, but I couldn't quite marry them up. Mm-hmm. And until, you know, later when I came across uh, the integral stuff. Yes. Well, one of the big reliefs was me. Uh, I read um, uh, Ken Wilber's um, Sex Ecology and Spirituality. And in the appendix of uh, that book, the very large appendix of footnotes, um, uh, he, uh, Ken Wilber talked about the psychedelic experience and the, the subtle visual phenomenology as, uh, uh, as being authentic and the same as what people sometimes experience in the meditation halls. So for me, he sort of legitimized uh, it, even though uh, because of his Buddhist orientation, he, he wasn't participating in it, but he had enough uh, friends from his generation and his peer group that had, had been there and done that and uh, and also become meditators so it had both the uh, psychedelic and the non-psychedelic uh, version of this so th- this this was a, a nice confirmation i could sort of relax and stop questioning it and just see it as as as, as phenomenology uh, rather than is it a hallucination is it real or is it not real it's just phenomenology it's just something that occurs that somebody could interview you about you know and uh, so this was a uh, something coming from Wilbur that he was from from that seeing it all as the knower of experience and the experience and whatever it's, it's all true but partial so it sort of uh, saved the day it wasn't the ultimate and it maybe wasn't the final aim but it was true mm. but partial so I'm just aware of the time. We got we got half an hour to cover twenty years. Okay. So from uh, okay. <laughs> it's quite easy to do. We can skip through this. Um, okay. So another uh, interesting break uh, I I had in 1999 uh, because of my mushroom uh, interests. Uh, a friend uh, said to me, "Oh, there's um, it's a Brazilian group that uh, uh, that, that uh, do a very structured version of of, of ayahuasca ceremony. Um, they call Santo Daime, and uh, they've existed for eighty years now in Brazil. And they they're so structured that they won the legal right to use ayahuasca for spiritual and religious use in 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 Brazil. And uh, uh, along with another group, the, the UDV, have that status. And uh, so I went along uh, to my first uh, uh, ayahuasca session. And um, uh, for me, all I could do was to uh, sit and meditate and have this experience. And uh, they, the people, the Brazilians, uh, could sit and sing very eloquently and play very complex musical instruments. They, they'd learn a different skill level whilst they were in this sort of uh, uh, state. Uh, so I was quite impressed by their music skill and the fact that they could like sing so well and uh, sing better than well, sing sing amazingly, and I could hardly stand. 
And then uh, the final two hours of the, of the work, they got us all to stand up and they showed us a very simple march to the left, march to the right, march to the left, like, almost like a Qigong dance. And the last two hours of the work, in time with the music that they were singing, the whole room uh, separated men and women. The, uh, the whole group would march to the left and then march to the right, and the room oscillated with the women moving one way and the men moving the other way. So it was the first time I'd ever experienced a real structure within a, a psychedelic work, other than just sitting and meditating. And uh, also, in, in a, I mean, uh, ayahuasca tends to be group work yes uh, it's, it's, it's uncommon for people to do it on their own for example no you need that peer pressure to help you <laughs> swallow the stuff <laughs> yeah yes. yeah i mean there's all sorts of reasons why it it lends itself to being done in a group yes yes I, I Where, whereas mushrooms are, you know, are much more amenable to you know being on your own you know so, I mean, in a group's okay but i mean it's, it's also all right to do that on your own Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and um, so I, I sort of hung in there, and it was I learned a lot uh, uh, about how, how a structured uh, singing, dancing, uh, sometimes strict meditation, uh, uh, sometimes concentration works that they would do, where there would be very little singing, and we'd just meditate for long periods of time. And then they'd sing a song and then sit and meditate for another 40 minutes. So they were doing concentration works, were basically sitting meditation works with, the, with a few songs. At other times they would do festijar works, which were celebrations, where once they'd got us up singing and dancing, uh, eventually they would do eight-hour eight works where they're singing a hundred and, uh, over a hundred songs and the whole works are done singing and dancing, which I needed all the stanima from my tai chi training to keep up with these people whether it was sat meditating or, or singing dancing mm. and uh, uh this this was this was the christian church i i needed when i yes. was a teenager <laughs> <laughs> and one of the beautiful ceremonial ritual aspects of it that the they their um brazilian uh not roman catholics they're from a folk syncretic folk catholicism so they align themselves with uh, the indigenous uh amazonian culture with the freed black slave spiritual culture with the african spiritual culture that came with the slave movement and with the christian saints uh, and the Christian angelic archetypes of, of Christian mysticism and in no way connected themselves with Rome. So it's like if you bring Catholicism to this country that already takes uh, psychedelics, you're bound to at some point get a psychedelic religion that's mm. doing it its own way. So this well, is there's uh, something similar has happened with uh, psilocybin mushrooms in Central America and Christianity. Yes, something very similar, where indigenous, a syncretism between indigenous and, and, and uh, angelic entities, Catholic saints, so perfect, perfect blend. And for me, this was really, uh, uh, I was getting quite into perennial philosophy. So this is like a, a type of syncretic perennialism um, and um, some, some very wonderful experiences. And I, I didn't have the time or the money to go and do meditation retreats. I couldn't afford the time and the money, so I wasn't able to do them. So me be go, able to go along to a Santa Daimi work and, and within a one day event, have uh, an intense experience that uh, in, 
that encouraged me in all of my efforts that I was making in the in the Tai Chi and the meditation and gave me encouragement to continue. Uh, so I was able to tap into the uh, the ayahuasca uh, and use and use them as like mini retreats that happened within one day or within two days, which I did have the time for and it was done by donation. So I did have the money for it. Uh, so it was like discovering a vipassana that happened in eight hours. You could fit in into your into your uh, uh, your your weekends, and uh, um, I sort of uh, stuck stuck with this for a long time and got a lot out of it, and uh, and it was a wonderful experience to have how movement, singing, meditation fits from an indigenous perspective and in a lineage that's 80 years old what technology have they integrated into their their moving and stilling and meditation in in relationship to their their, their, their sacrament uh, the, the the ayahuasca um and and i from that i i thought uh, i read the wilbur stuff and i thought i need to get a bit more serious here and uh, uh all of that experience uh um i <laughs> brought the visual stuff back and like you say in the Hinayana tradition the visions uh, are not uh, uh, a, a huge thing but in Tibetan Buddhism uh, and Dzogchen they're a big part of the of this of the practice um, so the same so that was my program I stuck with that for uh, all the way for the next 10 years basically it's Tai Chi meditation uh, the, the the opportunity to do ayahuasca and then around uh, uh, 2011 um uh, the the I, I don't mind saying this because it was in the papers anyway the the, the santa daima were taken to court and warned and told that they couldn't function anymore in the uk and that was very sad and it was uh, hard for people um mm, yeah and yeah, well, I mean, up, up till that point, the the legal status of of ayahuasca was was kind of unset. I mean, it, you know, it was nobody really knew that's you it. Know, where it stood. You know, yeah. in, in places like the UK. Yeah. Um, so and, it was uh, the first, yeah. as you say, the first time that the authorities had made a, uh, a stand about it. And, uh, mm. um, um, so. Uh, <clears throat> I thought I'm not going to let this. Um, I, 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 I went and did at that point. I went and uh, I thought I've been reading the Wilbur stuff for 10 years now. I need to check I've got it right. Uh, like, it was so easy to misinterpret things. Uh, so I found out that they were running uh, an MA course at the JFK University in San Francisco and it had the option of doing like a year a year and a half or something and doing a, a certificate or if you could hold out for three years there was an MA at the end of it but the pace of it was quite full-on and uh, the the workload was sort of 25 hours study a week and I was doing it on top of a day job so I managed to survive for a year and a half with a lot of help from my wife and uh, I wrote I did eight subjects two subjects a quarter two papers to write at the end of it the next quarter another two subjects write a paper so I, I managed to write eight papers and uh, got a feel for what uh, I'd misunderstood what I'd understood and had great uh, opportunity to have a lot of peer feedback of 
people are getting their heads heads around it. So it was one of the best investments uh, I, I made. And uh, uh, and then as I came out of that, I, I realized I couldn't keep up and do the full MA. I thought, what is the one thing I would like to do uh, to focus on? And uh, it was to come back to the meditation, to ask those lecturers and my peers, who's one of the top people that can explain this stuff to Westerners? Uh, I might also have some misunderstanding in the translation. Uh, um, I felt there was something missing and people kept saying, oh, Dr. Daniel Brown from the Pointing Out Way tradition. He wrote a, a book with Wilbur and uh, Engelman uh, uh, where they covered five different uh, traditions. They covered, I think it was Christian mysticism, uh, uh, Hinduism, uh, to perhaps Buddhism and perhaps Zen, but basically they looked at the um, developmental sequence rather than the detail of those four different traditions and, and saw very, very specific uh, correlations. So even though they bitch about each other and accuse each other of not getting it right, they all go through the same developmental sequences with people that stick with the program over a long period was, of time. Was that the book called Transformations of Consciousness? That's it, Transformation <clears throat> of Consciousness. Yeah, I think I tried to find that and yeah. couldn't find it. Right. Yeah. I, like, you know, that, this was a long time ago. It might be easier to find now. but It's a very technical book, uh, um, but, it, but very interesting. It went out of print because there was uh, some of Wilbur's ideas have moved on. Then they got permission to, I think you can get it as a free PDF right uh, no or a second hand. With that what, you know what you what you have described there is a really important recognition um that all these different spiritual traditions seem on the surface to be so different from each other incompatible but if you kind of look beneath the surface features they have these progressions along the, the, the path looks very similar mm -hmm. um in all of them yes. and <clears throat> once you once you know that scheme so i mean a classic example of it might be the 10 ox herd pictures from zen mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and uh once you understand that you can plug any religious tradition into that so you could you could then pr practice christian meditation um, yeah. through that same schema yeah and um you know my own practice i kind of started off with the tibetan buddhist stuff but then when i came across this underlying pattern that was that was that i could then see that in all of these other religious spiritual traditions and yes. i've actually landed more back with um a, a practices that are more to do with my own culture mm -hmm. so i do um i mean I, I do kind of straight um you know zogchen meditations of uh formless awareness type meditations dharmakaya type thing but I also do what you might call tantric visualization deity yoga practices, mm -hmm. but I don't use Tibetan deities because they don't mean anything to me. Yes. I mean, this, this was something I run up to run, run up against when I 
was studying this academically and I was very much into the Tibetan thing. Um, these practices, I knew they were important and they resonated with me, but the, the deities I was studying and trying to visualize and visualize all their ornaments and ritual objects and all that stuff, it had no cultural resonance with me at all. I was having to generate that myself and it was an enormous amount of effort. Mm-hmm. Whereas now um, I do basically the same practice that follows the same scheme. Yes. But I do it more with um, the kind of, uh, you know, English rural goddess you yes. know, type. Um, Some archetypes that you recognize. So, well, that's it. You know, I'm drawing on archetypes that, I mean, and even, you know, uh, Star Wars was, an, was the mythology I grew up with. Mm-hmm um and uh you know uh, lord of the rings and stuff like that so mm-hmm. <clears throat> those kind of archetypes are more what i can draw on in, in a tantric practice but if i said that to a uh to a traditional tibetan teacher they would just laugh in my face you know yeah, tell yeah. Me i was just i was like a little child playing in a sandbox um mm-hmm. but uh, i i don't need to have uh, now I don't need to have a Tibetan p- teacher come and confirm my practice. Yes, yes. I, I don't need that anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, but there was a time when I was very much worried about that kind of thing. But I've all let let that go. So I think <clears throat> they're like Star Wars and things. Are our folk folk culture, our generation's folk culture, and our postmodern myths? Yeah, hero's journey. Well, you know, y- Yoda is is it, for me. Yoda is a, is a is a better embodiment of Avalokiteshvara than mm-hmm. Chinrizig is in Tibetan, you know, so, or, you know, that, the, that kind of wise, compassionate, or maybe he might be more like Manjushri or something. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, the reason why I bring that up is that this kind of, um, that's almost like a mental academic practice, mm-hmm. searching for these underlying structures and of and developmental sequences and paths that um apply in all of these circumstances and once you've kind of taken that out um you've got almost like a universally applicable mm-hmm. tool there yes um but that's that is literally blasphemy to the religious traditions you're doing that to Yes, uh, it, it was spiritual syncretism is is heretical in a way because you're bringing your neighbours archetypes and, uh, and and bringing them to the barbecue in a way. Well, I mean that's actually it's funny because all of these religious traditions have done their own form of syncretism, mm-hmm. but they've just choose to ignore it or maybe forgotten. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they did it. Tibetan Buddhism, for example, is a is a, a syncretism of the Indian tantric Buddhism yes. and uh, Tibetan pre-Buddhist shamanic techniques. Yes, the Bon tradition. So they, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and and also the you know the, the 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 Buddhist tradition that was taken to Tibet was also a a kind of syncretism of Hinduism plus a few other things, and you know, I mean, it's and it, well, Hinduism wasn't even a thing. You know, it's, that mm-hmm. was a, a colonial term but anyway, yes, we, yes. we digress but but i mean i think what the, the, this is a very powerful moment when you realize that that there is something underlying all of this mm-hmm. um 
and, and uh, we we don't like the the inter intellectual activity like that is kind of like you know people don't like that in spirituality it's like mm -hmm. it's almost uh, it, they think of the industrial revolution and logic and reason and destroying the planet but you know get that away from my spirituality I don't know yeah yeah uh, yeah we have a difficulty with the uh, with the soul and the archetypes uh, Jung uh, tried to devise some way in which Westerners could be comfortable about them and uh, other other uh, places like in India and in South America they just get on with it uh, yeah. with uh, the, their neighbors archetypes and their archetypes as sort of uh, historic representations of each other um, I mean for me it got me beyond the, um, the, the, the I did a lot of cultural healing I think and, and of overcome a lot of uh, resistance and, and understood the tears and the struggles of, 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 of indigenous cultures and things like that by singing their songs to their, to their archetypes of Pachamama and uh, Preta Velos, uh, the wise old black man and the wise old black woman, uh, very sort of powerful archetypes. Um, it was so um, unusual for the life expectancy of a slave in Brazil was, was about eight years. So to end up with wise old black married couples, they normally didn't used to make it into an old age. So Peto Velos is a wise old black man. Uh, Mama Velos is a wise old black woman. But just taking those on and experiencing them through songs is a lot of, uh, if I go, it created a cosmopolitan perennial spiritual identity for me that uh, could go beyond a lot of the postmodern uh, problems and issues and things like that. And uh, I think you mentioned it before, you have to recognize the positive creative contributions of uh, Western culture, indigenous cultures, uh, whatever culture and, and, and focus on the best of it and uh, rather than the worst of it at some point in your, in your critique of the world yeah <clears throat> well a, a lot of it's straw manning isn't it yeah you know you you, you straw man the other world views and say oh look at all the rubbish stuff and then you steel man your own um worldview take the best parts of your worldview and pit, put it against in an unfair competition against the worst parts of us on the worldview. Say, oh, look at this, you know, look at this fight. There's no, there's, yeah. Um, I really would like to hear more about uh, Dan Brown and uh, this object. Yeah, I'll, 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 right, so the, Dan Brown's is super interesting in that I was very used to Ken Wilber's model in which they stack up the sort of, the, uh, the, the Hatha Yoga and then the subtle work and then the causal work and then the non-dual. Uh, and I know that Wilbur has questioned this along with Al, uh, Alan Combs and the way Wilbur Combs matrix uh, questions the validity of that hierarchical progression and notices that some cultures were just very, very non-dual orientated, maybe some of the Taoists, and some of them were very subtly orientated, uh, maybe like the Born, and then some of them were very sort of Hatha Yoga orientated. And it was presumed that there was a sequence, 
And um, when I went to the Dan Brown thing, Dan Brown said that he'd has, asked uh, Rohab Tulku, his Lama, uh, how best to teach this to Westerners. And uh, Rohab Tulku said, well, Dan, you're going to have to work out which is the best way to, test, to teach this to Westerners. And Dan uh, said that one thing that he wanted to alter was the, uh, the sequence that they were taught in. So um, uh, this is what I experienced when I turned up to Tibet House, Swiss cottage in, 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 in London, which if Tibet was recognized as a country, it would be the Tibetan um, uh, uh, where diplomats would hang out. Uh, it would be the uh, embassy, the Tibetan embassy. But because no one in the world recognizes Tibet as a country, it's just Tibet House. And uh, it has a meditation hall there and some Tibetan treatments. And uh, so Dan uh, arrived and um, Dan told us about this sort of intuition that it was better off if you teach Westerners the emptiness practices and give them a, a glimpse of awakening and then come back around and teach them the uh, preparation practices. So he reversed the teaching order. So the very first uh, three days of a, of a Dan Brown retreat is, um, is almost back to Vipassana with three days of mindfulness of breath as the object of concentration. And then they take you into some of the Dzogchen pointing out where they've established the experiencer of uh, the breath. And then from that, they can, the experience of the view and the view and things like lion's gaze. And I thought, what, what have they done here? Basically, there's a lot of people in the Hindu tradition, like Papaji, that says, oh, if I was taught Jiani uh, yoga first, I might have got along the path quicker. And they're uh, similar to what you were saying, uh, if there were certain mm -hmm. things that were taught in a slightly different order, you might uh, save yourself seven years of slog because you realize that your, uh, your position of experiencing the meditation is just is, is, is one step too uh, uh, involved in the experience and the, the stepping back would allow you to, oh, okay, and then you could come back in. And Dan Brown sort of did that. He sort of, so this is a general complaint. And these wiser, brighter, integral teachers have sussed on, and some of the traditional teachers have sussed on. And uh, they know that there's a more optimum way, depending on people's personalities, maybe. So it's maybe, it's true but partial. But on more Westerners, you can get it to work in a, in a, in a, in a better sequence by changing the order. So you don't sort of just crack on and say Hatha yoga and then subtle energy yoga and then a causal yoga and then non-dual yoga. That's the best way to do it. Basically, Dan Brown did a, uh, some mindfulness of breath and then dropped into the non-dual emptiness practices. And then they go back into the subtle practices of ways of cleaning up the residual uh, duality that still exists in your own, in your own uh, system which is very peculiar but for me it, it worked worked really well and uh, and and then i started recognizing what he'd done and and uh, a lot of in, in india it's different there's so many different teachers and they're all a little bit freelance they all know this they, 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 this it's not like a big lineage with a big monastery and uh, in india they've constantly played around 
and uh, some people like Romana Marashi did the Gianni f sort of first and then went into a really powerful ongoing marinating in, in the silence which worked for him and India is full of people wandering around asking other teachers whether there's a more optimum order in which they could experience and get a clear picture of what's going on in, in, in a way so it's, it's, it happens in India, it happens for us Westerners, and maybe it's just trying to find the right order of teaching sequence that suits your personality type. Mm. Who knows what it is? <clears throat> and, uh, and just, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, um, who doesn't know Dan Brown, um, <clears throat> I think he calls himself Daniel P. Brown, probably to, dis to distinguish him from some other Dan. Oh, the, uh, the author the of the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So... So Daniel P. Brown is not some uh, irresponsible, disrespectful, um, you know, Western academic who's gone in and ruined some some perfect yes. Tibetan. He mm -hmm. he's he's studied Tibetan Buddhism for I think fifty years or something, yes. and he speaks the Tibetan language and has mm -hmm. translated loads of texts. He speaks Sanskrit and. You know, I mean, he's uh, he is as authentically engaged with this tradition as as any Westerner I've ever heard of. Yes. Um, so he's 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 uh, tinkering around with this from a place of great reverence and respect and understanding, too. I know uh, we can call him Doctor Dan to distinguish him from the Da Vinci Code uh, guy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, so Doctor Dan. Uh, when came up with this idea, his uh, root lama uh, was Rohab Tulku, uh, who was uh, head of one of the Bon lineages and had obviously become a refugee. And refugee found himself in America. And um, Dan had uh, coincidentally shared a room with him uh, back in the early 70s and then reconnected it with him later. Uh, Rohab Tulku's position within the Tibetan spiritual hierarchy uh, is that uh, he was regarded as the uh, living incarnation of uh, Padmasambhava, the historic figure who brought Tibetan Buddhism to Tibet. So Rohab Tulku agreed that it was an interesting idea and Dan should try it. And he said he could try it under one condition that um, all of the students that wanted to go to the next level with this uh, were followed by a mentor and a coach. So he wouldn't, he would, he would only let him do this on this condition. So everyone that went through this and wanted to continue with it uh, ended up myself. I had to align myself with one of uh, Dan's recommended meditation coaches, uh, uh, Dr. John Churchill. Uh, so yes, it was something that they were keeping very close track of, of how it went. And also that person that's tracking you is looking at your own, personality and how you're struggling or making sense with different parts of the teachings so they're also starting to tailor it for you and sort out your own 
plenty of time to ask questions about your own queries and, and deal with it as a, as a, as a personal, personal relationship. So, uh, so it was a big thing for Dan to be allowed to do this, but there, and then there was also a lot of responsibility that he had to uh, create this uh, mentoring uh, uh, system. Uh, and for me, it worked uh, re really, really well. So I did... Um, uh, I, I did Dan's level one uh, retreats. I did it twice because I enjoyed it so much and it was so densely packed, so advanced in a way, so much there. I, I was happy to do it a second time and uh, recognised more. And then I did a level two retreat and um, I've continued ever. That was uh, 2012 and 2013. So I ended up with uh, John Churchill as my... Uh, meditation coach and I've had him ever since he's somebody I check in with every three months it used to be once a month every three months now uh, and uh, um, uh, so I you know it was uh, the other thing I was missing from my practice that people talk about gurus and teachers and having a personal relationship I ended up with that personal relationship as a meditation coach thanks to Dan's new way of, 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 of teaching and uh and that very first level one retreat with dan uh because he uh set it up uh and i did get a glimpse uh that uh, i could rely on then suddenly all of the other practices that were really similar to what i'd done before uh i was seeing them from uh, a slightly different perspective and uh and uh um one of Dan's thing is taking meditation off the mat that when you're meditating on the cushion it's just a practice before you go out the house into your daily life and really your meditation should be uh, happening throughout the day mm. and uh, and and this I knew about this sort of thing but uh, Dan was very very good at uh, teaching us how we could do this having a, uh, a sort of a samadhi which is a gathered together you can still think and converse and do everything but to uh, you constantly checking your platform of operation that it's from the view rather than from little stew so it's this sort of puts you in an identity relationship a little bit like the ramana maharashi stuff but the the zogchen version of it and, and a way yeah. in candace o'denver have you ever come across her uh, no yeah she's an american <clears throat> lady um she she teach i mean she's got her own kind of teaching but it's it's very much like zogchen um mm -hmm. but um it's her own thing mm -hmm. and she has this saying that uh, short moments repeated many times becomes continuous yes and <clears throat> it's that short moments of resting as awareness throughout the day mm -hmm. You know, if that becomes a uh, continue, you know, but, you know, the more you do that, it becomes a continuous experience, yeah. and then the more you do it, the more it builds on that, and it just there's no end to how deep, yeah, you know, it goes. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and and I think that's really important to integrate. A, you have some kind of pra practice that you do when you're not on the cushion, mm -hmm. uh, and it can't be like a totally it's got to be a practice that you can do anywhere anytime you know mm -hmm. it can't involve getting out a, a ritual bell and ringing it and um you know 
singing a song or whatever because you you might be teaching a lesson or um yeah. driving or uh, you, you know giving a speech <laughs> you need a discreet way of doing it yeah you need a way that's sort of invisible yes um but yeah otherwise you can get very attached to just having your experience whilst on the meditation cushion mm-hmm. and then you have this kind of schizophrenic thing and i mean i'm talking about this from personal experience where i would have this experience in meditation and then i would get up and get on with my day and i would uh you know lose it and then i'd get it back again when i did my meditation but then when i started to harness these two practices together um it became really helpful and then there have been periods in my life where i haven't been able to do so much sitting meditation and all i've been left with is the short moments you know mm-hmm. um and that's carried me through those times mm-hmm. um and i think another thing i appreciate about the zogchen stuff is you know they they do long retreats and long sitting periods but they're also they advocate shorter meditation sittings as well yes. of yeah. 20 minutes or whatever half an hour because because you can become quite attached to doing two hours of meditation or whatever you get you get attached to that in itself and you yeah. you need two hours to get into that the right state of mind but what if if you've, if you've only got 20 minutes to go deep you mm-hmm. know so in it uh, I like the way they kind of they they mix it up a bit like that. That's it. They've got a lot of skillful means that are quite um, uh, easily to, uh, to 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 switch on and switch off. They've got the fast switches and the more marinating uh, uh, type meditations, uh, um, and they seem to include uh, within their punching out instructions most of what is taught through uh, um, Gyani Yoga. Uh, but uh, I did find it refreshing to actually come and look at the Ramana Marashi uh, stuff and go through those exercises and then compare them to the pointing out instructions in in, in Dzogchen. So that's more recently what I, what I've done. And I mentioned to you all also that uh, so I um, came across the Douglas Harding uh, headless. Uh, work which uh, people often compare to the the Zogchen uh, meditation of taking the view uh, mm. sitting in a beautiful uh, landscape and taking the whole view including the blue sky including the peripheral vision so Dan Brown taught taught us these uh, Zogchen versions of taking the view and then when I came across the Douglas Harding stuff they've got a similar way of taking the view by these strange pointing exercises so you get a definite sense of the of the knower and the field of experience and uh, uh, a few tricks of, of recognizing your your reflection in a mirror as uh, the wrong way around and it's a, always a much smaller version of it we only ever see our own face as a reflection never ever do we see our own face or our own eyes it's like an impossibility and that um because douglas harding was really into romana marashi when he wrote many of his books to try and explain the headless way, he's using uh, Jinani yoga and mm. mixing with his own discoveries of the pointing. Uh, and then I could like look at that and then look back at the Zogchen and go, oh yeah, Zogchen is very complete. It's got versions of that in it, integrated in it. But it was really nice to come to a, the neighboring culture 
of India looking into the Dzogchen meditation and the Western culture of Douglas Harding, who grew mm. up a Plymouth Brethren Christian, uh, had various awakenings through his own experimentations and walking in the Himalayas and living in Calcutta for, uh, as an architect and working for, for quite a few years, moving around India, visiting a small number of very potent, uh, both male and female uh, uh, teachers, a small amount of them, and then also relating uh, many uh, of his own awakening experiences to Christian mystics, or a perennial collection of mystics, that uh, uh, seem to have had a sort of similar thing to the headless experience. Mm. And, uh, I, think, I think one of the perils that we need to highlight um, is the, that realization of formlessness is so powerful um, that it can suck you in mm. in a way that you can end up rejecting the other side of the non-dual yes. thing, yes. which is the world <laughs> you know the universe um this is a really good good important point yes it's a, yeah. it's a step back to a radical duality it's not non-dual yeah and it's, it's um the critique non is the non-dual tantras critique of um you know some of the earlier you know Patan, patanjali um mm -hmm. yoga sutras and that kind of strict jnana yoga that takes you back and back neti 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 yeah, yes you know into into the nothingness and it's that it's a sort of transcendentalist mm -hmm. thing of privileging ascending uh, direction yeah. and yes. um <clears throat> i mean luckily i mean i i certainly when i i did that happened to me mm -hmm. um and then i had this I could describe it as the goddess crashed crashed in mm -hmm. on me and said, "How dare you forget about me?" <laughs> kind yes, of yes. What about the Shakti? <laughs> yeah. What about Shakti? What about Mother Nature? All of that stuff. But I think you know it's what this developmental sequence that we were talking about—the path that this scheme that practice tends to follow—is that um, you know people do their meditation practice. They have that recognition of formlessness, get slightly lost in it to some degree, mm -hmm. and then then they get pulled out of it again into this more complete non-dual uh, recognition of the importance of the inner and the outer, and that it's all one thing. Yes. Uh, Shiva and Shakti are in this loving relationship, which is the whole. You know? Yes. And, um, and ultimately they... Uh, in, in, in that kind of unity vision, give up their own identities into something that subsume, subsumes them into something greater, even than Shiva and Shakti. Mm -hmm. It's this uh, indescribable supreme being, you know. Um, the, uh, it's definitely something to keep an eye on getting, they, could, they, they get, but it's basically getting stuck in part of the path. Yes, yes. Thinking, thinking that you've got to the end. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, there's, but there's more. And, and, and there's always more. And, and, and I think that any time you have that moment where you think, right, here we go, this is it. The big one's happened. 
the alarm bell should go off. Yes, it should be a warning to to, to yeah. check and to, uh, to 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 talk to you to your coach or whatever. Yes, yeah. and also if you hear other people talking that way, mm-hmm. uh, your alarm bell should be going off too. That that <laughs> they are trying they are trying to sell you a view which is an incomplete one. Yes, or it's a immature. Uh, they won't think it's immature, but it's no. an early stage non-duality realization that. Uh, uh, I mean, I was lucky uh, that uh, I had a mentor in this thing. He reminded me, "So hold on, okay, you got this non-duality, but remember that the duality exists within it." Mm. And I, oh, of course. So it's like everything is in consciousness. The universe is in consciousness. Duality is in consciousness. Ultimately, it's all non-dual. In consciousness is consciousness. But there's a strange position of stepping back into the transpersonal identity and um, not coming, as you say, and you step back and you come back, pulled back in by a Shakti, demanding that you work for her is the best thing that you can happen to. Formlessness is not the only transpersonal domain mm-hmm. uh, there's a transpersonal form mm-hmm. you know i mean if we were to call uh transpersonal formlessness god mm-hmm. uh, just if i would just to choose that it's not gendered but you know, mm-hmm. let's just for the sake of let's play the game of using that language um then there is the transpersonal world of, of form um mm-hmm. is the goddess you know and um or mother nature yeah to use our european lingo Mm -hmm. um and uh i was samuel bonder said to me uh um i did a did a session with samuel bonder a while ago and he said that samadhi one of translation of samadhi is the equalization of pressure from the inside and the outside Mm -hmm. and um yeah so it's uh it's it's a really important thing to to just flag yes uh, yes because people can hear people from the zogchen tradition or something talking about this stuff and think that they are saying that's the whole picture is the emptiness yes yes uh but but they um zogchen actually doesn't really have that encoded in the teachings mm-hmm. uh, but that might an, an individual teacher might be emphasizing that unconsciously yes. due to due to their own personality or practice you know. yes it's not it's interesting to observe somebody who's taken that stand and then and then seeing that the strange short-sightedness or uh, unengagement that it might foster accidentally. I've had to stop getting annoyed with some teachers that I know are in that position, mm. and uh, and uh, and go, okay, that's that's fine. That's where they're at, and they're selling this to the public, and they say that that's the okay. I can see how they've got it. Mis- it's again, it's like a strange misinterpretation, and sometimes they're the non-practice people. Because they say, oh, if you practice anything, you create an identity that practices it. And then that's going to stand in between you and your enlightenment. But it's not. It's going to stand between you and your enlightened disengagement. Uh, And and that's why traditionally people didn't like to give the teaching of the uh, right at the beginning. So say Dan Brown, 
is taking some of these saying right at the outset everything is perfect mm -hmm. as it is you know yeah. on its own terms that's the place from which we're going to start yes and then we do the the, the you know the follow-on teachings but mm -hmm. you know i think historically and traditionally people have been worried about doing that because of what you're saying that someone gets that piece of information right at the start and they say all oh, right well i don't have to do anything then yes. but that's not what so someone like dan brown that is not what he's saying yeah um, but what's great about making this explicit is that right from the outset you can tell somebody the end the end of the journey is this yes. and it's also here right at the beginning yeah you know, basically what i was saying everything is perfect as it is nothing mm. you need to do um but but in the meantime in the meantime make yeah. a difference. Uh, and, and even because it's perfect i mean it's difficult to talk about in language but you have to practice and because that's but that's the place from which you do your practice yeah. um you know because you don't know when you're going to die could be tomorrow and if you haven't been given that teaching right at the beginning that you know that gives you that kind of relaxation of like oh well if i die tomorrow it doesn't matter because mm -hmm. I and all of this is perfect as yes. it is. Yes, I did what um, I, I did what I could, and it's perfect. Yes. Yeah, so. um, and I, you know, the the alternative would be going through all that long, laborious path, and then dying just before you get to the non-dual teachings. <laughs> you know, yeah, that yeah. would really suck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm I'm aware of the time. Um, well, we, that, I, sorry, we've run over a bit, but. Um, <clears throat> Is there anything else you want to say you feel we that's important to say we haven't covered? Uh, I think we've covered it all and we've got to, a, for me, a very interesting point on, on this thing of like what the end point is. Um, and and um, uh, it's something that I sort of had to become very clear about from a number of different angles. And, uh, uh, and the same as the conversation we've just been having for the last a couple of minutes i guess i really appreciate the fact that i did my tai chi and i did the ayahuasca they were almost shaktis that allowed me to go to the non-dual and then embody and come back in so i've, I've never stopped doing something i just uh, happily continued on uh, had the realizations kept on doing the tai chi some people would have stopped doing that and then moved to meditation and stopped doing the meditation because they've now got gianni uh for for me uh john churchill sort of challenged me four years ago and uh and says now you're coming back into it you could have a very quiet cushy life um because you know how to drop stress and things like that or you could do something that's a challenge challenge yourself so Zogchen, famous uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, I can't remember her name, but she spent 12 years in a cave. Then she came out and spent 12 years running a nunnery for, 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 for a Tibetan Buddhist uh, nuns. And uh, so he, she said the, the time in the cave was the preparation to come out and run a chaotic nunnery. Uh, and, and that was the real, real work. And in a way, that's a perfect example of getting the non-dual realization through the practice and then realizing the real, real juices of where you, whether you can in, um, integrate this in a real, real challenging, uh, forward thinking, bridge building uh, process. 
and I guess we all have to find uh, our version of that. Uh, um, for me, uh, I, I did the Tai Chi and the Qigong and I never felt that Tai Chi and Qigong went deep enough in the meditation. So I've just kept on teaching the Tai Chi and Qigong, but now students who are interested, I'm happy to go there with the meditation with them. And, uh, and I also, the sort of body Qigong, Tai Chi, the sort of subtle and some of the heart stuff, uh, yes, the Qigong and the Tai Chi. Uh, for me, I kept on my singing interests, so I really enjoy s s singing sacred songs as a sort of heart practice. So uh, when John challenged me, I thought, yeah, I need to keep singing and sharing the wonderful Bhakti songs. And I need to um, sort of correct an imbalance in the Tai Chi and Qigong training. And if people want to go a little bit deeper in meditation, they, they should have that option. So, so that's how I sort of started to own uh, what, I, what I was experiencing being happy with my multiple belonging to three different spiritual traditions and bringing it together and then at least in my own student relationship feel uh, presenting really explicitly the value of, 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 of being able to sing as a meditation the value of being able to do a, a good physical practice the value of being in touch with your your somatics and your energetics and that non-dual thing, instead of just trying to run to the one that would work or saying one of them was the answer. So I've refused to ex accept anyone as the ultimate answer. And, 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 and uh, so now I feel like I'm working for, a, uh, for a, a, a couple of shaktis after coming back into uh, the experience. Uh, I love sharing the songs as a type of shakti devotion. And, uh, and sharing the Tai Chi as a type of Shakti devotion that exists in the world. Mm. And, and mostly people that I know are householder people with families and getting this stuff so it works not in a monastic context, but for, for, for people in a daily life living in urban environments. So that's, that's sort of to round up how I integrated it under pressure and sort of made it uh, my own that our own experiences here in this cultural context we we relearn take the best of what is presented to us integrate it and and and, and just share because other people around us are in a very very similar postmodern, often urban uh, living in england you know how, how do we do this for english people how do we do this for, for people that come from wherever, Polish people that happen to be here, or Brazilian people that are interested in meditation because they've already learned ayahuasca. So uh, some of my stuff is um, going to things like the, the London Psychedelic Society and really trying to encourage the new psychedelic psychonaut kids to consider doing Tai Chi and Qigong as an ongoing practice in between their uh, psychonautical weekend experiments. To, yeah. to hopefully stabilize if they do have an awakening yeah <clears throat> well that's the way to integrate psychedelic experiences is through doing all of those things mm -hmm. and if you don't do them it's not going to become part of your dna so to speak I true think. very true yeah well <clears throat> is there, is there um where can people find out more about your work well, uh, my, my Tai Chi website is uh, is uh, in, integral 
hyphen tai chi all as one word dot com and uh, uh, that's by formal tai chi uh, website and it does mention in, in there every everything uh, i do and, uh, and and then on a practical level i uh, i i teach uh, saturday mornings in the park tai chi and then at lunchtime i come home and i do an hour and a half zoom so anybody from anywhere can uh, uh, do zoom uh, qigong and meditation uh, with me um, so uh, they can write to me at uh, uh, Stuart Stuart dot verity one dot com, or uh, or we can uh, I'll maybe send you the link so I can give them two addresses in which they can contact me personally, or they can uh, uh, contact me through my Tai Chi website, and uh, and uh, and this so the it's been a great opportunity to do this because rather than just standard Tai Chi and Qigong that I was taught, uh, it's uh, a more integrated, uh, more engaging for me to teach and for people to practice. Uh, so, cool. Yeah. That sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your story. And uh, well. I, you know, I, I do hope that it'll benefit other people. You know, with uh, with the similar intuitions, similar interests. Uh, you know, wherever they are along their path, um, it's it's. I think it's really helpful to to hear how how things have been for other people. Yeah, yeah. similarly, I can hear in your story very similar assault course of things to mm. deal with, and uh, both seem to have dealt with them in very very similar similar ways to to weave through this. And it's been because there is some real skill in those traditional uh, systems and there's some real skill in the mature Western teachers like Dan Brown and Wilbur that have showed us how we can do them as a, as a householders uh, mm. uh, in, 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 in a postmodern, postmodern life with, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, with everything we need to sort of turn it into an ecologically orientated, conscious, spiritual orientation that we have. That's, oh. that's a, a nice statement to let, to finish on thank you so much Stuart and um, I look forward to talking to you again sometime cool alright lots nice of love <laughs> bye bye bye